you will recall the name Bernie Madoff. He's probably the most recalled name, individual person's name, if not uh, the most recalled of any person's name or financial firm's name out of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Somehow the runner of a Ponzi scheme became the most known rather than the heads of banks who did a very poor job of assessing their risks. One of the banks that came out on top of the 2008 come apart was J.P. Morgan Chase. I don't remember uh, the exact chronology, but of course, J.P. Morgan used to be one thing, and Chase Manhattan Bank used to be another thing. I don't remember when those two converged, but the point is, the name Chase and the name Morgan have survived through a merger. I don't remember whether that was before or after. But if memory serves me correctly, that's where Bernie Madoff had his accounts, or account through which he ran his Ponzi scheme. I better double check this. Well, that quick double check uh, yielded the top result by Bing being that his account was at Chase Manhattan Bank. So at that point, not yet JP Morgan Chase. So I'm not going to go into the details um, the, completely as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to recover some of the details real quickly, but the point is that basically this was a savings account at, at Chase Manhattan Bank. He was not actually uh, putting funds into an account that would have had a one or two people overseeing it. Um, they would have known what sort of equities Madoff was buying and selling. You know, it, it be, you know because when you're talking about large numbers, um, and I don't even know what we're we talking about. Let's see here. Um, in the billions, right? So here, um, decades-long ties to Madoff cost J.P. Morgan 2.6 billion. Now I'll have to look into that 2.6 number sometime, but. Let's see here. We have January 7th, 2014. J.P. Morgan Chase and Company agreed to pay $2.6 billion to the U.S. government and Bernard Madoff victims to settle allegations that the bank failed to tell authorities about its suspicions of fraud at Madoff's fund. Even as the bank cut off its exposure to Madoff's fund to minimize its losses, in what ended up being a $17.3 billion Ponzi scheme. J.P. Morgan never shared its doubts with U.S. authorities, government prosecutors said. The bank connected the dots when it mattered to its own profit. So what am I getting at here? J.P. Morgan Chase, this huge, huge company, um, which, you know, it's grown out of the, the man, J.P. Morgan himself, um, whose ties going back into his own day and to his father's day are very suspicious. This, this huge bank knew all along that Bernie Madoff's fund was basically just a savings account because were it anything else, they would have had a, a, a registered sort of offer, uh, officer of their own bank to, to oversee this account in certain ways 
you know, I, I don't know all the regulations, but the, the, the point is that there would have been um, specific people communicating about this account across major institutions if it were actually an investment account. Did they just think, oh, well, Madoff has an account at some other bank that that's actually, you know, that that's his trading account, blah, blah, blah. No, no, I, I, I really don't think that was the case. <laughs> I, I, I think that most everybody was under the impression that Madoff's fund was housed at, at Chase Manhattan. And, and uh, you know, so the people who mattered at Chase Manhattan knew very well that Madoff was not buying anything because that's, that's just not what was happening. And so the, the lar- one of the largest banks in the world, most powerful, uh, I think we can assume, and a, a survivor, more or less, of the 2008 collapse, knew all along that this most infamous character of that collapse was a shyster to the nth degree. I want to put out there for you the possibility that this character was just a cutout, just a bag man, just a bland fall guy. If you were willing to entertain that, I have a more interesting presentation for you. That is Pogo. My name is Kerry, and this is From the Hill. Okay, I'll state it once more. Chase Manhattan Bank knew that Bernie Madoff was running a scheme, and and more qualified persons than myself have explained this in some detail in video interviews that are accessible on YouTube and podcasts and so forth. There's greater reason to suspect that Chase Manhattan was more culpable uh, than I've already explained, but just keep in mind that they knew all along. The real message that I want to send in this episode is that you don't need to be the bag man for someone else. I'm I'm positing that yes, Bernie Madoff was someone who more or less enjoyed playing a game. Perhaps earlier in his life he was caught playing a different game and Chase Manhattan decided to make him uh, the the fall guy that he was. I, I, I don't think it can be understated how important it is to recognize just how notable this person's name is. Oh my goodness, what a scoundrel. And it's psychologically, that could be very meaningful when we consider that, you know, his 17 billion or whatever it is that I just read a moment ago, that scheme was a shadow of the mortgage-backed securities uh, bailout. It was, pardon me, it was, a, it was a fraction, I'll put it that way. And it was nothing compared to the larger uh, financial instruments that surrounded that issue. All of the CDOs and the uh, CDOs of CDOs, et cetera, et cetera, during the housing crisis. We all know this story. No one was really held responsible for that crisis. No one went to jail, right? Just one guy or whatever. Uh, now, I'm not sure that there's a case to, to be made for many or if anyone going to jail. I'm not, not close enough to the issue, except for Bernie Madoff, right? But 
But his Ponzi scheme, which is remembered out of that time period, is the only thing that takes up much psychological space compared, you know, uh, related to a person actually, one person being reprehensible. It's, it's Bernie Madoff. And I can't help but think that's really, really convenient. And whether he knew it or not, he was the bag man. He's, he's not just the, the, the guy who went down criminally for holding, you know, for creating this Ponzi scheme. He is the psychological bag man who went to jail in all of our minds. But the reason I'm talking about Bernie Madoff is that there's a different kind of bag man. It's, it's become a bit of a topic discussion of discussion regarding the GameStop situation that is ongoing. Who is going to be left holding the bag after the run-up in price? There's varying perspectives on on why we should even be talking about that. But the, the, the point is that uh, the, the, the name bag holder is for someone who is staged up for a crime, someone who is left behind. And uh, I think the movie The Dark Knight, starring Heath Ledger as the Joker, uh, comes to mind. The, the beginning scene, spoiler alert here, where uh, wherein all of the Joker's accomplices in robbing a bank are shot uh, one way or another. It's their job to shoot somebody else, and then eventually the, the, the Joker shoots the last guy in the chain uh, so that nobody knows who the Joker is and nobody knows where to find him, so on and so forth. And and so more or less, each one of those dead accomplices be, become a bagman. Now, in the stock market, in a price run-up that ends with a dramatic crash or in a or just in a in a consolidation of the stock market there are bag holders who are these people whether the stock goes down 20% in one month uh, 20% in one week goes down 90% in 3 weeks uh, or 3 weeks or 6 weeks the, the the bag holders are the people who who's who never exit their positions in these stocks. There's not really a great reason to do that if, unless you are so enormously wealthy within that stockholding portfolio that it just really doesn't matter ever. The, the truth is that most people are not that wealthy. Not, not even close to being most people are, are that wealthy that it doesn't matter. And they won't be so wealthy that it doesn't matter. I want to take case, case in point recent conversation I had with uh, a lifelong friend. He said you know, he was talking to his stepdad and his stepdad said, well, I had about $315,000, $350,000, I think it was. In his, it was in his 401k prior to Black Monday, 1987. He said just recently, I still don't have that much in my account. Ladies and gentlemen... The, the purpose of this episode is to offer up to you that you don't need to be that bag man. You don't need to be the person who buys into the idea that you're investing for the long term and you won't worry about temporary ups and downs. Under no circumstances are you obligated to hold the bag for hedge funds, other major institutions, and everybody else who is benefiting off price run-ups in stocks that you also are bought into and then are selling well before you do. You know what would be the benefit 
of not being their bagman and selling nearer to the top, which your ownership, your portfolio once reported, you would sell near the top. And when the markets reached their bottom, their temporary bottom, you can buy back in. This doesn't involve emptying your 401k and paying the tax on it or anything. It just involves you telling whomever is in charge of selling your positions within that 401k to do so. You don't have to be the bagman for any of those other people I already mentioned, and you don't have to be the bagman for your quote-unquote financial advisor. Oh, and by the way, this is not financial advice. I'm merely stating a fact that you do not have to be the bagman. You do not, under any circumstances, are you obligated to be the bag holder for anybody else that you don't really absolutely choose to be. Usually the response that I get to this sort of statement is, well, how do I know where the bottom is? You know, if I were to go to, um, if, I, if I had funds vested with or through a certified financial advisor and I wanted to sell off that position, they'd probably challenge me. They'd say, Carrie, how do you know how there's a correction coming? Or, or how will you know when to buy back in? You know, if you, if you, if you sell and then there's a 1% up day, think about all about how most of the gains in any given X year period all happen on five days. How would you know whether to be involved in those or not? And I would say, first of all, there are ways. There are ways to know when to buy in. And there are ways to buy in when you're buying in. And there are signs, clear signs, both at the top and at the bottom that distinguish for anyone who is willing to pay attention that those are tops and bottoms and that there are times to be cautious and to make entries or to make exits. No matter how it is that you want to invest, whether that be in index funds or specific stocks, there are clear signs. All you have to do is look into Mr. William O'Neill and his works, his website, Investor's Business Daily. It is a wealth of knowledge, and, and I would begin starting with uh, his books if you want to take control of your portfolio. I don't quite understand the perspective of the people who resist that knowledge and uh, seem to be you know, it's kind of like standing under the falling piano. Most people are aware right now that we're in a time of precarious risk. And it's in a time of precarious, you know, the most, it's when things are the most risky, when things are at this time the most hysterical, euphoric that they've ever been. Oh, and also rampant rates of fraud. You know, if you've, if you ever watched the, the big short, one of the things that, that Michael Burry took a, took a special notice of and is mentioned in that movie is that fraud was rampant and that that was a indicator of a market that was out of control. Well, let's, I mean, uh, that was just the housing market alone. If, uh, check out my next episode for an explanation uh, <laughs> of just how rampant fraud might be. So here we are. Everybody knows it. Everybody, almost everybody, anyway, I think, recognizes the illegitimacy of of the continued buying of the stock market. 
there are reasons that it makes quite a lot of sense to me, and, and I mentioned some of those in a previous episode, but it's still not healthy. And we can recognize that and say, okay, I'm going to reduce my risk. Some of you have had just glee, I'm sure, over looking at your account statements over the last several years and going, wow, look at that number just go up and up and up and up and up. And, and you are probably some of the same people who are thinking, well, I'm in this for the long term. I'm only 30 or I'm only 40 or I'm only 50 and I have to ride the downturns so that I can ride the upturns. And again, the purpose of this episode is to say that this is a false idea, which is propagated by people who are certified to give you that advice, but are wrong. Wrong. I would not personally vest myself with uh, someone who would give me that advice. I could not trust them to exercise a good strategy in the market if they were doing that for themselves. Ultimately, everybody turns 64 or 65 at some point. And some people were about that old in 2008. Some people were about that old in 1987. Some people were about that old in 2001, 2000. This, the list goes on and on and on. And some people are about that old now. And you know the story. You know the teacher who was already retired and then went back to teaching in 2008, 2009. The other people who scratched by after losing their homes, losing their businesses, etc. Never mind why they lost it, but they lost it in a lot of cases because they stayed vested in the markets to be somebody else's bag holder. And once again, this is not financial advice. It's a statement of fact. You are under no obligation to be somebody else's bag holder. I hope that this resonates with you. I hope that if this episode was a new approach for you, that you'll take hold of it, take hold of the idea, and investigate how you might exert more control over the future of your finances. And I would suggest that the that there's, there's plenty of things to be learned that would uh, open up opportunities for you above and beyond just avoiding the downtrends, which are avoidable. I'm not telling you that there is going to be a crash tomorrow, even though I think tomorrow, which is March 22nd, 2021, is, uh, is actually a fairly likely date. And I would say that even uh, clear into June, uh, there's, there's likely to be a pretty interesting unraveling of, of the markets based on some research that I've been doing. Nevertheless, uh, there will be a day. There will be a day of reckoning for the financial system that we have. I, what's, what's transpired since 2009 in the continual upswing of the markets, almost without, without any hesitation, has really defied what I thought was possible. But when you understand that this system is not corrupted, but that it is corrupt in itself, that it's not having a sickness, it is the sickness, you'll understand that, that that must come to an end eventually. And so there is a time when you must protect yourself, must be ready to protect yourself, and you must um, embrace that alone, is that you, more than likely you are the only person who can protect yourself because just about everybody else is going to encourage you 
to be a bag holder for the people who are going to sell at the top. Someone always does. No one's telling them, hey, don't sell, don't sell, you're gonna miss out on the opportunity. No, no. You see, it's, it's the people who are selling at the top who understand that someone else will be the bag holder. Don't let it be you. Thank you for your time and your attention and have a wonderful week.